Film Society of Lincoln Center. You are listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing our in-depth conversation with Oscar-winning filmmaker Barry Jenkins, whose highly anticipated If Beale Street Could Talk was one of the most acclaimed selections of this year's New York Film Festival. During the festival, Jenkins sat down with writer Daryl Pinckney to discuss his filmmaking approach and the process of bringing the writing of James Baldwin to the screen. Let's go now to their conversation. kind of y'all. Um, before Daryl and I sit down uh, and talk about stuff, Mr. Pinkney, stuff, um, I wanted to say a few words about somebody very special who's in this room. So a few years ago, I made this film called Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, in 2008, actually, which is a decade ago, it's so strange. I made it for $15,000 with five friends in 15 days. Uh, it screened at South by Southwest in Toronto. And all this stuff started happening for me. And all that stuff I thought was really cool. And then I realized I was still really broke, like two years after all this stuff happened. (laughs) And um, and this is when uh, there was this website called IndieWire. It was very new at the time, IndieWire. It was run by this guy named Eugene Hernandez. Eugene Hernandez, who's standing behind me. And... And I would see Eugene around on the festival circuit, and Eugene's really good about checking in with filmmakers. He'd be like, how are you doing? And after a certain point, I was really honest with him. I was like, you know what? I'm not doing too well. You know, I was really broke. You know, I had this film that gave me cultural capital, but I didn't have any actual capital. And Eugene said, you know, it's funny. I'm talking to a lot of you guys, a lot of you filmmakers, and I'm hearing the same story. And I said, you know, I would love to tell this story, but I don't want to be the face of it. And Eugene said, you know what? I'll protect you. You know, come to New York. Next time you're here, sit down. I'll take you to lunch. I was so broke, I couldn't afford lunch. And we sat down and we talked. And I was very open about what it was like to be an indie filmmaker working in America, trying to make ends meet. And this man behind me was so kind and gracious because I wanted to tell that story so much. And my friends and I told that story to each other so much. And because of him, and nobody ever knew it was me, I was anonymous in the story, you know, all these other filmmakers started talking about what it's like to be us. It also happens to be Eugene Hernandez's birthday. So please join me in welcoming, giving a happy birthday to Eugene Hernandez. All right, now we'll talk about cinema and stuff. I'm sorry. So uh, thank you for uh, coming here. Um, you said that uh, Moonlight was the family you had, and If Beale Street Could Talk is the family you wished you had. I was very touched by that. I wonder if you could uh, talk about that, especially in terms of uh, how you decided on this book and found it. Were you looking for something about the prison question or a book by Baldwin to engage with? You know, it's interesting. Um, You know, I have to uh, give praise to Terrell McCraney and James Baldwin, uh, the authors of the source material of these last two pieces, uh, because I'm not a very brave person, and I don't think I would have been brave enough to talk about the family I grew up in, um, which was a child born to a mom addicted to crack cocaine, if Terrell McCraney hadn't put it into his play um, first. Um, And I've actually, I've, I've, I've talked to my sister about that quote, um, and she told me, you should say it's maybe the family you could have uh, been brought up in, uh, because I don't regret anything about uh, my upbringing. But uh, when I wrote these two screenplays, I wrote them at the same time. Uh, to me, they kind of got at the same question, which is, what is it like to grow up in a black family um, in America? And I think both those families are working towards the same end, 
but the circumstances are very different. So I think when I, when I say that quote, it's about this idea that maybe there was a different life um, for Barry Jenkins. And I think Moonlight is the life that I actually had. And when I look at the Rivers family, you know, when I look at Regina King and Coleman Domingo, I'm like, yeah, it would have been cool to have them be my parents, you know, um, but, but they were not. So um, when I first read this book, I had read a lot of Baldwin at that point, but I hadn't read A Little Shriek of Talk. And I was just blown away by the pairing of this very pure romance, this, you know, this romantic love, this filial love, um, and then also the systemic injustice and how it's a very beautiful, lush book that wants to cradle you, but it's also angry as hell. And as a storyteller, I was just obsessed with pairing, you know, this nurturing, you know, and, and this anger. Um, all of Baldwin's novels are love stories and your films are love stories, but I can't think of another Baldwin novel that has a woman as the first person narrator. Um, he has very strong kind of women presences in his fiction, and especially in the plays, the late unpublished ones. Uh, but I can't think of another sort of woman. Was there a reason you were sort of drawn to uh, the woman's point of view in telling a story about how a family gets caught up in the American justice system? Yeah, you know, it, it kind of terrified me. At the time that I wrote um, these things, it was after the speed, the energy of Moonlight had pretty much burned out. And so uh, the question for me was, you know, what's terrifying? What's scary? You know, I am not a gay man. Um, and so to step into a gay man's shoes for Moonlight was terrifying. And I'd never written anything from the female perspective. And so to tell a story uh, through the female gaze from the female perspective was equally terrifying. So it was just at that moment about, well, what am I not doing? You know, I'm not doing these things that are outside myself. I'm not doing these things that I feel like maybe I'm incapable of doing. You know, I'm not taking that risk uh, with myself. And so uh, when I read the book, you know, the the piece of Baldwin's that I always wanted to adapt, you know, from an undergrad, uh, an ignorant undergrad, not knowing how these things work, was Giovanni's Room, um, which is a very male perspective. Uh, but when I read this, there was just something I thought really, really kind and compassionate and earnest about the way Baldwin tried to um, enter this young woman's psyche. Um, and then I read this, this story of Baldwin finishing the manuscript um, in France, in the south of France, and somehow Miss Morrison, uh, Toni Morrison being there, and him sitting up one night and just reading the entire novel to her and just waiting, like just like this puddle of goo for Toni Morrison to break him down. But instead, she was like, you know what? Not too bad, Jimmy. <laughs> and, and my hope was that we would make this film and someday some strong, black, literarily savvy woman would tell me, not too bad, Barry. So if you see the film and you like it, please tell me, not too bad, Barry. Well, another thing I find striking is um, when Baldwin wrote uh, If Bill Street Could Talk, there was a, a sort of split in uh, uh, how black American life was portrayed. On the one hand, there was the school that sort of argued racism was such a kind of violent and terrible thing that all expressions of black culture in some ways uh, were about uh, pathologies, mm -hmm. uh, handed down uh, inheritance of, of kind of dysfunction. And uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, there were those who said, no, black culture is in itself an expression of survival mm -hmm. and uh, what's been achieved in spite of racism. And uh, back then in Baldwin's time, uh, these oppositions were represented by Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison. 
and we're, most close, we're more close to Ellison's point of view now. But I always found it very striking that if Beale Street Could Talk is the one book about Baldwin's that I would say has a kind of, um, uh, projects a future, mm -hmm. has a sort of positive message in contrast to the nonfiction uh, he was writing at the time. Mm -hmm. um, do you sort of find uh, uh, in your work or your ideas, uh, does this I come up for you at all as a sort of opposition or something you're, you're doing, how you're supposed to represent uh, black life? Do you? Yeah, it, it comes up for me a bit. I mean, it came up for me more, I'll say, in Moonlight um, than it does in Beale Street. You know, the character played by Naomi Harris in Moonlight was a very, a very tough character uh, to bring to life. You know, I did worry about the idea of propagating stereotypes, you know, of reinforcing uh, stereotypes. Um, and yet, this character is my mom. It's not a stereotype. It's a flesh and blood human being. I mean, so I took it off the table. Um, I think with this book, um, that wasn't really a consideration for me. I think one of the things about cinema that I love, as, and at this point, having done two adaptations back to back, is how you can fill in the picture. You know, like in the book, in the text, there's so much interiority. You know, novels are, you know, I envy you. You know, it's the perfect medium for interiority. I think in cinema, that's harder to get at. At the same time, I think because the audience walks into a theater, and they can see the colors that we're painting this image with, um, it kind of allowed me the freedom to go, I know that this story maybe should be painted in these broad, miserable strokes, but we're not going to do that. Um, and what I found in this book, I'm glad you mentioned the nonfiction versus the fiction. What I found about this book was that it was this blend of Baldwin taking um, a direction, a thesis statement he would normally have put into an essay and instead putting it into flesh and blood a narrative, a drama, uh, to be honest, a procedural um, with these flesh and blood uh, characters. And once I understood that, I thought, oh, and then this other thing that's happening is Baldwin is asserting the humanity of these characters by making the romanticism so ecstatic, so ecstatic, so aesthetically ecstatic, even in the way he writes it, and yet applying the same lens or the same paintbrush, the same pencil, the same typewriter to the systemic injustice. Mm. And I think what you see is the duality of experience for black Americans, you know, circa the time the, the novel is written. And it's weird, you guys, I'm talking to you guys, you haven't seen the film yet. I think when you see the film, um, you will understand that we apply the same brush to the visual depiction of these stories. And so bring it full circle. No, I, I wasn't worried about it. <laughs> There are moments in the novel when I feel that Baldwin forgets that Tish is speaking. Mm -hmm. That sometimes she, it's not that a 19-year-old black girl can't be insightful mm -hmm. or eloquent, but she starts talking like James Baldwin at certain points. Who Literally. Unmistakable wait, 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 who, who, who's read the novel here? That's a pretty good ratio. I appreciate y'all. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I find in some ways uh, uh, the camera lingering in your film, and you've worked with the same cinematographer in all of your films, uh, James Laxon. I find the camera, in some ways, represents those moments of interiority mm -hmm. or this eloquence, just because they photograph so beautifully uh, your characters. I must say, one of the things that's so riveting for someone my age to watch your film is how, beautifully, how beautiful black people look in color. Mm. Uh, uh, we're used to sort of black and white. We dominate that. But in color. Is that you uh, saying yes? Somebody's saying yes to it right here. And, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm in church again. 
it sort of jumps ahead to something I maybe wanted to say at the end, but I'll say now, which is also, I find it very interesting and again, rather moving that your films are about things, but then don't forget that they're also films. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's a great deal of pleasure in the experience as well as something you take away with you afterward, let's call it trouble, uh, something like that. Now, but the book, when it was published, they made a very big deal of it being a kind of blues novel, mm -hmm. uh, the blues aesthetic. But I don't find your I, I, film I know. very bluesy I know. at all. I know. Maybe I, know. I have a kind of no, 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 out no. of it definition of the blues. No, it's just, it's, it's, <laughs> but, but it is, but it is jazz. I'm so glad that, well, no, there, it's jazz. Yeah. I, I think we, the, there, there were two roads, and, and we could have gone blues, we could have gone jazz. And there's a lot of blues written into, uh, the novel, the actual text. You know, Baldwin was a big uh, cultural, cultural uh, critic. You know, he just devoured everything. And so there's music written all throughout. Um, but for me, as we were making the film, you know, the text is one thing and the image is another. You know, the book is one thing, the film is another. It just felt like jazz was going to be the thing that ruled the day. Um, and honestly, there's a quote that opens the book about uh, Baldwin's father being born, you know, um, in New Orleans, you know, which is, you know, jazz. So. Um, but I think in, in both those, those story forms, you know, blues and jazz are both beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous, you know. As far as the, the spectrum of the human experience, I think oil paintings, cinema, jazz, you know, po poetry, you know, all the shit, they They're all, they all fit. And yet, I think both blues and jazz, even though the aesthetic principle, like the thing that's carrying the message is beautiful, there's so much pain in blues and so much pain uh, in jazz. And so it just felt like, both forms would be a good fit for what we were doing. And I just like, you know, you think of jazz men and jazz women and they're all like sway and lyrical and all this stuff. It just seemed to fit uh, the aesthetic of what we were doing a bit, a bit better. And he is an artist of the period, uh, Fani. Um, uh, another difference, um, I don't want to keep tying the film to the book, but, you know, uh, leave it in a minute. Welcome to the next four months of my life. <laughs> Uh, uh, the uses of the city are very different. In the novel, Tish is rather bitter about New York City and uh, has these kind of angry plans of getting beyond its jurisdiction, its power. Uh, but the film presents the village as this really romantic landscape, almost their kind of private world uh, that uh, you know, outside forces then uh, intrude on. It's the most beautiful kind of evocation of the village streets and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the scenery of their uh, very intense uh, romance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, those kind of uh, uh, white people sort of impinge here and there, but at the same time, in their search to make a place downtown, uh, a freedom that Baldwin, at his a at the same age and his experience, didn't have because he was always rather ambivalent about the village, mm -hmm. but not not in this not in this piece. Um, they have white allies who help them uh, sort of reach for their dream. So you know, in some ways, the depiction of white people in the film is rather different, also from the way it is uh, in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or? Yeah, there were a couple of choices we made um, very early in the adaptation process and definitely in the casting process. Um, one of those was, I just felt like 
literally the syntax, the sense of structure with which Baldwin wrote the romance was so lush and so beautiful. You know, with Moonlight, the influences were like Wong Kar Wai, Claire Denis, Ho Shao Shen. With this film, it was literally the way Baldwin constructs sentences, you know, the way he describes love. And the feeling I got from that was just this overwhelming sense of awe and just this overwhelming sense of lushness, the lushness two people can create mm. just between themselves. Um, and so we wanted to lean into that. We wanted to lean into it. Um, and then with the white characters in the book, and as we cast those white characters in the film, um, there was something very charged about what was happening um, in this book at the moment that Baldwin wrote it. And being a 37, 38-year-old man adapting it, I'm right at a point in my life where I'm thinking, I'm looking around at my generation and I'm trying to figure out what world are we going to give to our children? You know, when we're 60, 65, what is the world going to be like and when we take responsibility for it? Because I often feel like when you're at the age of 20 or 25, you assume my parents gave me this world. And so when we were adapting the book to screen, most of the white characters, we took them and we aged them down. Nice. So in the novel, there's this lawyer character, uh, uh, Hayward, when the book, he's like 45, he's been around the block. Fonny's not the first of these kind of cases he's taken on. And yet he has this epiphany. And I thought, oh, I think it'll be much stronger for a 30-year-old man to have that epiphany. Um, this cop who uh, forces Fonny into the situation that literally cost, almost cost him his life. And the book is written to be 42. And in the, in the film, you know, we cast Ed Scrine, who's closer to 30. Again, it's like we should take responsibility for the world that we're giving our children. You know, it's not that these people are already set in stone. They can choose to be or not to be this or that thing. Um, outside of that, the characterizations, I think, are pretty consistent with the book. Um, and so the Officer Bell is a nasty-ass dude in the book, and he's a nasty-ass dude in the film. Um, you know, Hayward is a very wide-eyed um, guy in the book, but I thought by making him younger, that wide-eyedness um, would read even larger in the film. And then this character played by Dave Franco, Levy the Landlord, um, who Baldwin somehow, despite how angry this book is, this guy shows up um, in, in Soho, before Soho is Soho, and he's showing these people this loft, and he is just full of love. And I was like, this is crazy, how, how, how can this be? And as Dave and I started workshopping the character, uh, what we saw was this idea of mothers, um, both in the book and in the film, and what is going to connect these people, these young people now, because we've aged the Dave Franco character down um, uh, the, uh, in the adaptation. And I don't, know, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the film or if any of you have seen the film, but thank you. Uh, it's a, appreciate you, thank you for that clap. Um, there's this very simple scene where this character walks into the film and is performing this very important task. And I was very careful about not writing into uh, the source material much, but it just felt like there was something that this character had to say um, to our main characters. And he says, um, you know, I'm just my mother's son. Sometimes that's all that makes the difference between us and them. You know, and it's like, who was the us and who was the them? You would assume that the black people are one us and the white people are one them. But it's like, no, there are us who've been raised the right way by our mothers and there are them who maybe haven't been. Um, and we can't even blame them for that because maybe their mothers didn't have the capability to raise them the way that we were raised. And just, it, and, and, and these small sort of exchanges, I think those were the places where we found if we were changing things, we could link it back up with the novel. Mm -hmm. At the very least, it would be in the same spirit. I found that it sort of kept the period of the film and the novel, this guy and that kind of dream of coalition, mm -hmm. uh, as much as the cars. And uh, there's an incident of terrible sort of domestic 
violence erupts suddenly in a social situation. And then that also seemed to kind of bring the period as much as the clothes and the hair. You know, I, I thought about changing that. For, for those of you who no. read the novel, you, you know exactly what, what Daryl's talking about. I, I, I know. I'm I trying know, not bro. to spoil it for you. I, I know, bro, but it's like, you know, there were things that were... There were things that were maybe more commonplace back then than they are now. And it's not something that you try to be concerned about, mm -hmm. but you know, the audience is engaging the work today. And you know, that character has a scene later in the film. Uh, this character played by Michael Beach, who plays Fonny's father, plays Stefan James's father in the film. And he has this scene that I think is very important to the filial uh, love dynamic of the film. And yet you see him commit this very horrific act. And I feel like right now we're living in a time where horrific acts are these huge signposts. Um, and we very rarely see the people behind those, those acts, you know, across all degrees and spectrums of horrifyingness. Um, it's why the film opens um, just a scene before the novel opens and outside of it. Um, to me, it was really important to meet all these characters as, as human beings and then investigate the, the, the facts of the circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, because I think the two things uh, exist on separate planes. Mm -hmm. um, Baldwin's biographer tells us that uh, Joseph Losey at one point was uh, interested uh, in adapting it. Were there, was there a correspondence or were there notes that you could consult before you began? Or? No, there were no notes, but I, I, did, um, I did receive uh, a package, which was mentioned in this, this New York Times article that came out this week. I received a package that was like this notebook that um, was dated 1978, and the first two pages of that notebook were handwritten by James Baldwin. Um, and it was a really cool thing to receive because it was clear that he was writing the screenplay for the film himself. And he had like a cast list, and it was like Rosalind Cash and Ruby D. Um, and then he had directors listed that he thought might be suitable for it. None of them was Barry Jenkins. I wasn't even <laughs> born yet, but, but it was, uh, it was uh, Francois Truffaut, Louis Malle, uh, Gordon Parks, and Lloyd Richards, you know? And I know, because then I ended up doing the damn thing. It's crazy. Um, Just to think your idol wish list is, you know. But, but then it was cool, too, because I had already done my first draft of the, of the adaptation, and there was another page where he listed creative things he was going to do. There was going to be voiceover told mm -hmm. from Tish's perspective, so I was like, okay, good, we did that. Um, and there's this lovely scene of Tish and Fani as children. Mm -hmm. They have this scene in a church, um, and he had written that, I don't know if there's a place for this scene. Um, and when I did my adaptation, I didn't know if there was a place for that scene as well. So, yeah, I, I didn't consult with anyone but, uh, but JB. And it was after I'd already done the first draft, and I was like, okay, we cool, you know? <laughs> well, so it doesn't sound like it was a burden having him watching over your shoulder, so to speak. You know, it, it, it wasn't a burden only because when I wrote this, I had no damn idea or clue or hope that I would ever get to make it, you know? This was one of the few times in my life where I feel like I've, like, like Miss Maxine Waters, I reclaimed my time. Mm -hmm. Because it was the summer of 2013, I had no money, my producer, Adela Romanski, got together a couple thousand dollars and said, what do you need to do in order to write this material? I was like, oh, I need to go somewhere where I know no one. And so she got me a plane ticket and a few Airbnbs uh, in Europe. And I divorced myself from the results of the experience. I just thought, I didn't know anybody at the Baldwin Estate. I didn't have the damn rights. 
I just took the novel with me. I was like, I'm going to write this thing, and the reward is going to be the pleasure of writing it. Mm -hmm. And so the first draft of it, there was no James Baldwin, no nothing. There was no moonlight. There was no pressure at all. It, the thing existed unto itself, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most, um, the most. I even get emotional talking. It's one of the most pure times of my life mm -hmm. um, because all these outside things, all these outside pressures, opinions that we allow to dictate and affect the way we respond to our own work, how we feel about our own work, it just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It was just me and the characters, you know? And I wrote Moonlight in 10 Days and I wrote this in four weeks because there was just like, there was nothing else. I was, no, I was a, I was a very, <laughs> I was a very lonely, lonely person. It was just me. I don't want to hear it. It wasn't cute, bro. Hey, by the way, I'm I, glad I, to hear I, that. Can I take over for one second? Can I take over for one second? I, I don't mean to embarrass you. Can you stand up, bro? You, yeah, yeah, with the yellow shirt. I haven't seen this shirt in like 12 years. Turn, turn to face them. Anybody recognize this shirt? Anybody recognize it? I'm so sad, man. It's the shirt that Homeway wears, an elephant, Gus Van Sant's elephant. The kid walking through the hallway. I took my hat to you, my friend. I took my hat to you. Oh, I'm sorry, we can continue That's now. all right, because it leads into the next question. That uh, <laughs> Gus Van Sant's elephant? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, in addition to the visual lyricism we associate with your films, I think of them also as very literary. Uh, were you a, an English major or writing student uh, before you came to film? Yeah, I was. Uh, I first went to college to be an, an English teacher, um, and then I switched to uh, English Lit, and then I switched to creative writing. Uh, and then I got into film school, and because there was a hiccup for me in film school, I just felt like I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for film school. I took uh, a year off and finished uh, my writing degree. So I have a bachelor's in creative writing and a bachelor of fine arts in film. And yeah, it was nice to come through uh, liter the literature side first and then end up um, on the film side. You know, my dream was to go to the Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop and I very quickly divorced myself of that dream because, you know, you know, it's one thing to write a screenplay, a whole other thing to do what you do, my friend. Um, but I was versed or I'd been sort of like drowning in interiority mm -hmm. as my first sort of creative endeavor mm -hmm. that when I went over to writing screenplays, I still felt the freedom to write interior language into my scene descriptions. Um, and I think that kind of culminates with this film because there's so much voiceover in the movie. I mean, you've seen it, right. that it's like, there's this freedom to actually live in the interior voice. And then where the real trick comes is, as you said, Moonlight is filled with these silences. This film does not have as many silences, but because of that, when it does go silent, it rings way, 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 way heavier, just way harder. So yeah, it was, um, I feel like the way I make work now um, is has its origins in my earliest studies as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. Also, I suppose in the way you treat narration because you're not afraid to, you don't sort of construct film like an American director, there's sort of, so I wanted to ask you, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I didn't say that. Da, 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 I didn't da, say da, that. Da, da. I didn't say it either, I take it back. <laughs> But what were some of your early influences? What did you see that made you sort of want to go in that direction? Yeah, I, I think the way I approach voiceover, especially in this film, is driven by uh, Wong Kar Wai, for sure. By, uh, yeah, like, clap it up for Wong Kar Wai, for sure. Uh, in the Move for Love and Chunking Express were two of the first films I saw as a, as a film student that really just like, kind of like exploded everything for me. Um, and then a filmmaker I don't talk about as much, but Jean-Luc Godard also 
um, with someone. Yeah, just that there was. When I first got into film school, after the first semester, when I realized I could not keep up with everyone else, um, I just started going to Blockbuster and my like film school's film library. And the things, yes, I am old. Don't be laughing at me. <laughs> yes, I said Someone Blockbuster. At Blockbuster. Don't be laughing at me. She's like, you, you had no Netflix? It, was, it didn't exist back then. <laughs> um, and uh, our film school library had all this uh, French New Wave. And I just started just pulling everything I could. And again, I guess this is the other period in my life where I did nothing, nothing, nothing but cinema. And I had no responsibility, which is a very selfish thing. You know, I was a very privileged person. Um, I just watched movies, I devoured everything. And the way Godard approached narrative was so new to me. Mm -hmm. It was just so, it was, it was shocking, mm -hmm. you know? And it wasn't that I thought it was amazing or masterpieces, it was just different. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could do that. And the way Wong Kar Wai treated narration, I didn't know you could do that, right. you know? Um, and so when I went back to the film school, I made this short film called uh, My Josephine. It's pretty clear that I was watching too much of that art house shit, but, <laughs> but, but even as, as I think You have I, to master your influences. Exactly. And, and I, think, um, I think there was something sincere about the way those things were folded into my voice. Um, in uh, The Devil Finds work, uh, uh, Baldwin goes on uh, about uh, how fascinated he was by film and the medium of film as a child. Uh, was that a part of your childhood as well? I mean, it was, but not, not, the kind of, not the kind of stuff that I make now, you know? I remember watching, you know, like uh, uh, House Party and Weekend at Bernie's, School Days. Um, and anytime there was like a big black film, we would go out and see it. So it'd be like Color Purple, Coming to America, which I was probably too young to watch anyway. Um, but, but I wasn't fascinated with it. Um, you know, I, I think my mind developed uh, at, a, at a later stage or a slower rate than Mr. Baldwin's, um, for sure. So I wasn't intellectually or artistically attuned, right. you know, until much, much later in my life. Um, and it's, it's weird to say, but I remember watching Die Hard, of all things, and, uh, and somehow just having the patience, because that last scene is so hard when Homeboy comes out of the tarp and Reginald Vell Johnson does the pow, 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 which when you see it now, it's like very dark. Um, uh, but I remember waiting for that scene, because I'd seen it like eight times, and then Argyle comes out, um, and then the credits rolled, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna watch, who are all these people? And I remember realizing uh, that all these people made this thing. Mm. And that was when, it was when I noticed the crew. It was when I recognized the crew, which is why I think I, I try to treat my crews as well as, as, as I treat my actors. But it was when I noticed the crew that I thought, oh, you know, all these human beings create this thing that seems so seamless. And that was when the movies felt larger than life for me. Um, it's been 50 years since Baldwin had his really angry encounter with Hollywood. And now everything is very different for blacks in film. Or is it? It's supposed to be layups, man. Uh, so I was going to make a Knicks joke, but I'm not going to make a Knicks joke. I'll make a Knicks joke. <laughs> the coach called a play. You got to run the play, bro. We said layup. Um, you know, I mean, look, the, there's been a few different advancements that have happened in the last 10 to 15 years that I think have democratize somewhat uh, the process. And I think in that democratization, um, you're seeing people who are always capable uh, of telling stories, always capable 
uh, of running a show that has all female directors, you know, always capable of directing a superhero movie that makes a bajillion dollars and means something, you know, always capable of making, you know, a film about a queer black boy um, that wins Best Picture. I think the democratization of the tools of making films, of access, has just, it's not that anything is different, it's just that now people can see the shit, you know? Mm. We can make it and you can see it. Mm. And, and once you see it, it's bona fide, you know? And it always has been. Mm. Um, and so I think there are some people who have taken that opportunity, people like Ava DuVernay, people like Ryan Coogler, Jordan Peele, um, John Singleton, Spike, and instead of just walking through the door, you know, and letting it shut behind them, they are walking through the door. And Ava built her own road, you know? You know, people see Queen Sugar, but they don't see I Will Follow, they don't see Middle of Nowhere. You know, I mean, this was built. Her, her own blood, sweat, and tears built. And then when she got through the door, she fucking took the hinges off and said, every season, 10 more women of color are gonna come in behind me, you know? And I think if there's a difference, it's that people like Ava DuVernay, people like Ryan Coogler, people like Jordan Peele, you know, who produce Black Klansmen, you know? Um, I think those people are entering once they, not gain access, once they demand access through the power of their work, they're then going, oh, and there's like 20,000 more of me, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to make sure they have the same access that I have. So I think that's the difference. Uh, Colette said, um, uh, uh, don't forget when you arrive to send the elevator back down. But it also makes a difference uh, what uh, there is to see, uh, to be uh, inspired by. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I find it uh, a very agreeable cultural moment that there are so many different kinds of uh, uh, styles in black film that you don't have to kind of choose one like a candidate. Yes. Uh, you know that uh, yes. there's a certain kind of freedom. Yes. <laughs> Say you preaching, bro? Oh no! But uh, you know, just Jenkins. As, Jenkins. <laughs> well, uh, a work has a life separate from the artist. Uh, that's so. The book is not the film, and the film is not the book. But I don't know why I'm saying this. But here we go. Um, I remember watching Moonlight twice, three times, and thinking, you know, isn't that amazing that this gay guy could have made that straight love story? Medicine for melancholy, uh, so perfect. <laughs> that is the first time I've heard that, bro. Thank you. You know, that was really a very cool film. Um, uh, uh, and then I heard you say the other day, well, you know, I didn't understand, or it's a risk because I'm not gay. And I thought, ooh, how embarrassing for, for me. <laughs> you know, just assume that if he could make that film, then he must be gay. So it's that sort of, this kind of, um, uh, oh, I don't know, one plus one equals two is also something that breaks down uh, in your films, which are, you know. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're, you're reminding me of this little bit in Beale Street, you know, where this character played by Dave Franco says, you know, I'm just my mother's son. Yeah. Sometimes it's a difference between us and them. You know, Terrell McCraney and I have essentially the same mother, you know. We're the son of the same woman, essentially. And if I can't connect to his story because of this one difference between us, our sexuality, what does that say about me? And right. then what does that say about humanity? You know? yeah. And what does it say about the art form we work in? Yeah. And so I, I, you know, it's a, I take it as a compliment, you know? um, but I think it's, it's unnecessary in some way because I think we're all existing on the same wavelength you know, if we really truly look at who we fundamentally are. 
maybe we do, but there is such a thing as the mystery of talent, and you're really gifted. So maybe uh, we have some time for. Thank you. Maybe we have some time for questions. Uh, I see a, a very enthusiastic. Who, who the coach of the Knicks? Remember, layups. I don't know how to. Layups. Can you stand and give your question or? Uh, uh, the question was about love being a strong driving force in, in my movies and how do I craft that or, or, or decide on it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. I think, again, that's the place where I think we all connect. You know, um, you know no, matter, no matter what your sexuality, we all enter relationships, you know, whether those relationships are romantic or sexual or, or whatever. Um, to me, it's always the common thing, you know? You know, we all come from someplace. You know, we all have someone that we love, hopefully. I like to say life is about, um, or most stories are about, either the, uh, the abundance or absence uh, of love. And I think the pursuit of that has always been, for me, enough of a dramatic urge, a dramatic yearning to sustain a story. So in a way, maybe, um, maybe it's a crutch. Um, and it sucks, man, because this New York Times article came out, man. It made it seem like I don't value love in my personal life. And, and I, was like, I was like, man, this, this is not the case, and y'all going to get me all hemmed up. Um, but, um, but I think at the... Maybe that, you caught a break there, man. At the, at, the, at the bedrock of it, I just think it's what makes us fundamentally human, you know? And I, and I hope it's something that all humans uh, can relate to. I, I really hope so. And so far, it has been the thing that has allowed me to, if there's any connective tissue between the three films, that's it, for sure. Um, I see this young lady here. I'm sorry for the hands I can't see, right there. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have not considered writing or directing for the theater. You know, no, I like to, I like, to, hey, I like to stay in my lane, and uh, and my lane is up here. Um, I, I will say, there's a scene in, in if Bill Street could talk where the 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 Rivers family or the Hunts family comes over uh, to visit the Rivers, and in the book, it's like. It's this huge, sweeping, explosive uh, kind of scene. Um, and I was like, yes, I can't wait to tackle this. With 10 actors in an actual size living room with two cameras and only two days to do it. And so to me, that had to become like directing theater. You know, it really did have to be like directing theater. And it was terrifying, man. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it, but I mean, ooh, to do it, you know, 30 nights in a row or however long Hamilton's been going, I mean, I just, mm, I'm gonna stay in my lane. Uh, but, but, but I will say, though, I think it's, it's uh, this is a quote by Godard, it's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. Uh -huh. And I feel like by working with people like Terrell, I've been able to take some of those things from the theater and bring them to uh, the cinema. Uh, Thank you, Ruh. I see a young man with a watch. With, yes. <laughs> young man with watch. <laughs> I didn't call her my favorite filmmaker. Claire Denis is the greatest filmmaker in the history of the world. Uh, uh, you know, I think when, when I was trying to find my way uh, into cinema, to me it was about language and about visual language. And I just love that in a lot of work you see, you can see where the language originates. And I think with Claire, the language originates only solely within her. And I think it's something that for a young filmmaker is really empowering to see. 
that there's not one way or two ways or three ways or four ways to do it, there's your way. And I think Claire always is so singular about doing things in the way that her artistic impulse, her intellectual impulse, her emotional impulse dictates. So I just love how free she is um, in her work. And I know she hates that I talk about her so much because I think at this point, if somebody talked about me like this, I'd be like, get away from me, why are you so weird? <laughs> But I just, I just, it's, it's so what bad. What do you want? So I know. So I showed up today, and the first thing the New York Film Festival gave me was that tote bag with her face on it. Because cause the word's out. Barry Jenkins is a Claire Denise stand. I, I can't help it. I'm sorry. It's very good. Um, oh, I don't know. That young lady there with, yes, you. Ooh. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> this is going to leave me open to, to ridicule from critics, but it hasn't, man. I mean, I just, I, I kind of, I feel like I'm the same filmmaker. When I send an email, it has this quote about being an amateur. You know, I think I'm, I'm just, I'm just a guy who's trying to do things, you know, and working with the same cinematographer, the same editors. I see my composers there. Can you, can you stand up for me, bro? Because I love you so much. This is Nick Patel. Hey! <laughs> He's the composer for Moonlight and a Bill Street Talk. And, 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 and he'll tell you, I mean, people go and see the movie, they're like, oh, the score is so cool. I'm like, well, you weren't there for the 40 damn days where we were stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out how to do all this stuff, you know? Um, so I think I'm still working um, in the same mode. And that's why I think I'm a very privileged filmmaker. You know, I haven't had to conform my aesthetic or my impulses to fit the things I'm doing, you know, I'm just kind of exploring new terrain, but exploring it, and I think, uh, the same way. There's a freedom in that, you know, it comes from being obsessed with Claire. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same guy, man, I'm the same guy. Now the resources we, have changed, but everything else is the same. Aren't all directors tyrants and dictators? Nick, <laughs> am, I, am I a tyrant or a dictator? I mean, with, 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 with myself, with myself, you know, with myself. I always feel like, like I can do, I can give more. You know, the actors are giving so much. We do these direct-to-camera shots uh, in Moonlight. We do more of them in Beale Street. And uh, Kiki Lane, who plays Tish, is her first uh, major screen performance. She's amazing. She was giving an interview about doing these direct-to-camera shots, and she described it as looking into a black hole. And, and I said to her, I was like, you understand the principle of what a black hole does, right? You're saying that you bring all this energy and light and I just suck it into the abyss. <laughs> um, uh, but in a way, because I'm putting the actors through that, I feel like I have to be a tyrant you know, right. upon myself because right. I have to give as much as they do. Right. Well, someone has to be in charge in the end. I'm going to try and get that guy with the red. Yes. Do you have any advice for young filmmakers in high school? In high school? <laughs> I'll say two things, I'll say two things, two things. So when I was in high school, I didn't know I wanted to do this. You know, I, I wished I knew someone or had been exposed to this, you know? I didn't grow up in New York City with the New York Film Festival. I think it's the 50th anniversary. You know, shout it out for the New York Film Festival. Round of applause for the New York Film Festival and all the volunteers. Because you were in the room, you were there and I am here. There's not a long distance between where I am and where you're sitting, always remember that. So I, I would say, one, the world is on fire, and a lot of us are responsible for lighting those matches, and so I think you can't walk through the world right now and not feel those things, and not process them, and not, not be accountable for your role in it, your responsibility in it. You're a young person, so it's not much, but you have to really be accountable to yourself. 
Um, take your time. Be patient. You know, I like to say everybody wants to make it tomorrow. You know, Moonlight came out when I was 36, you know. That's like probably like 25 years older than you are right now. Um, so be patient with yourself. Uh, you don't need to be an overnight sen sensation. Uh, and then the, the thing I will say is, you know, at a certain point when you really realize what you want to do, focus on it and drill down. There's a young woman here uh, who I won't ask to stand. She'll be embarrassed enough. But I did this like college tour after uh, Moonlight came out. And I went to Bucknell University. And uh, yes, go Bucknell. <laughs> There's only like 200 students at this place. So it's shocking that, that you were here. And uh, so I went to Bucknell University. Here she is, Eve Wolf. And, um, and I met all these, these kids. And I was like, hey, what do you guys want to do? And some people said, oh, I want to be a director. I want to be this. And Eve said, I want to work in sports documentary. I want to work in sports documentary journalism at ESPN. I want to work for ESPN 30 for 30 films. I want to PA at ESPN 30 for 30 films. <laughs> So be specific, because at the time that Moonlight was on the festival circuit, so was OJ Made in America. And so I was meeting all these ESPN 30 for 30 people. So I said, you know what, Eve Wolf, I'm going to send an email. And I sent an email. It's a year and a half ago. She works at ESPN 30 for 30 films. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So really drill down, know what you want to do. And when that door opens, bro, you got to shoot through it, shoot through it. Well, it's sort of related to something else. I mean, what is the role of cinema in a society where reading is a minority activity? <laughs> Should I put some pressure on me, bro? <laughs> no, I, got him here. I, I, I do think that um, there's been this shift over the last 15, 20, 25 years where visual imagery is the dominant uh, form through which we communicate. You know, it just is. You know, you, I heard somebody's phone go off. You know, you turn on your phone, there's an ad. You know, you get on the subway, there's an ad. You know, and it's moving visual imagery. Uh, this imagery is very seductive, very seductive. And sometimes the, the housing, like literally the craft that's delivering the message is so seductive that you don't understand the message you are receiving. That's a very, very dangerous thing. As well, when we make these films, you know, whether you think the films are worthwhile or meritous, they actually have something to say, I try to do everything I can in my power to make them as visually sound, as orally sound, as anything screening on 4,000 screens made for $100 bajillion. Because this is what we're competing with. Yeah. And if the message is not there, then it's going to be here. But if you're used to seeing imagery that is of a certain level, of a certain craft, then you might go, oh, this message must be right, and this one must be wrong, because it looks funny, because it sounds funny. And so I think we're living in a very, a very precarious situation where, because so much of this information is coming through the, mo the medium that I work in, there's an even greater responsibility to be responsible for the things I put into those images. So yeah, man, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. One more question. This guy's. Well, you know what? Here's the thing about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, because I, I talk about. We could talk for like three hours, man. I talk about interiority. You know, I think interiority is where the soul, the spirit of any work lives. And there used to be this thing where I think the power of literary figures was so, so prevalent in the culture because of that interior voice. Yes. I think now that everything shifted to this, and it's much more difficult to get the interior voice into this. There's so much of that passion, that undercurrent, you know, of the people who are telling the truth. A lot of that's getting lost because the vessel that's delivering it 
isn't bringing that interior voice. You know, it's why I think it's so important. The images, the images, the images retain that interior bedrock. You know, the iceberg, all the stuff beneath the surface, that's the interior damn voice. And it's really difficult to get into visual imagery, but we try our damnedest to do it. Well, I think you certainly do it, that's for sure. I didn't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> no, you didn't. Uh, uh, I mean, I, that's why I say it's the, it's the gaze uh, in If Beale Street Could Talk that sort of stands for or represents this interiority you know, you know, and uh, the patience of the camera. Homegirl in that article, she said, uh, one of the things she said that was uh, Angela Fornoy, I ain't disrespecting I call everybody homeboy a homegirl, except Miss Winfrey and Miss, Miss Morrison. Um, <laughs> but um, Dr. Morrison. Dr. Morrison. See, thank you, Ra. I'm going to get hemmed up. So she had this piece where she said the direct-to-camera shots that we, that we do in these films, that the gaze is so direct and so open and vulnerable that for non-white audiences, it might be the first time they've ever gazed at a black person in that way in their life. And because that's not why I'm making the images, I just never considered it. Never considered it. Never in my life. But now that we're talking about interiority, and I read this thing this woman said so brilliantly, I think if I'd known the responsibility of that, you know, it might shift the way we build those images. But we're really just trying to reflect the soul. Yeah. And I think it's, again, the way you, because everything's jumped to this medium, you have to go that extra mile, put that extra thing into it to have it really carry the same, the same potency. I'm sorry, I'm going to let you get the question. No, no, I'm just sorry, this, bro. Like you're the last one. Go ahead. Same advice. Yeah, yeah, I give the same advice I gave to, to, to my homeboy with the red shirt, which is you, you got to really uh, be observant of the world you're living in, the time you're living in. Um, uh, the, this, this quick and simple advice I'll give, I've been given for like three years ever since Moonlight. There's this book called In the Blink of an Eye, written by Walter Murch. Read it, read it, read it. Um, because I think what we do here, as we were talking about interiority, it's all in the eyes, bro. It's all in the eyes. Um, and again, be patient, man. You know, Mahershala Ali is, I'm not gonna say how old Mahershala is, I'm 38, he's as old as me at least. You know, this guy's been acting for a long time. But you think Mahershala had it easy? Hell no. You know, that was like 20 years of work, of grind, refining the craft, loving the craft, loving the craft, loving the craft, loving the process, having no problem with going through diligently the process. So. Be patient, do the work, bro. And don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. All right, cool. Thank you very much. I mean, the. Thank you, guys. Thank you all very much. I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that uh, the difference between a work and life is that in a work, you can examine motive. And once again, everything Barry Jenkins does seems to come back to the human will to love. So thank you very much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>